Psalm 143, this is a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. Anybody feel that sometimes? I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Selah. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to meet here and to uh, look into your word, and I would ask that you would bless your word today and bless my uh, feeble attempt at uh, explaining it to the people here so that they can appreciate the marvel of what is revealed in the verses we're going to look over. And uh, I pray for all of the people we mentioned at the beginning of the service who are going through physical trials and troubles and those that are traveling and those that are just in distress of life, so many people that are attend this church online that have emailed me with their distresses of life, and I would ask that you would comfort them and give comfort to them. And uh, I thank you that my daughter has arrived safely from New York. What a surprise that was, and I'm so thankful that uh, she's willing to come down here and spend a little bit of time with us. And Lord, we do commit this uh, service to you, and we commit this sermon to you, and I ask that you bless it. Then I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see here. We're going to read our sermon text today. And I, as I was explaining to Mark over here, the boy that's visiting, um, we are in uh, uh, Exodus 28, verses 1 through 14. This is entitled the Ephod. And if you have not um, uh, been following these sermons, you might be a little bit confused because everything has an order in the book of Exodus and in the construction of the tabernacle and then the implements and then the priests and everything about that. And so it may seem like it's it's a little hard to understand. Don't worry about that. The message is that every single detail of this points to Jesus Christ. Every detail. And uh, I'm not going to re-explain from the other sermons. So you, that's why I say you might be a little bit lost. But when I say everything, every color has significance. Every measurement has significance. And everything that we're going to see today will be tied in with what we're going to look at next week and in the week, two weeks from now. Not two weeks, but the third week from now. And uh, so that's why I, I want you to understand if you are just here for this sermon, you may be a little lost. Don't worry about it. Just keep thinking of Jesus. Um, Exodus 28, starting in verse number one. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Avihu, um, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you should make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him and that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister to me as priest. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. 
So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two gold chains of pure gold, like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Anybody seeing Jesus in there? Lots of Jesus in there. The first four of our verses today uh, give orders for the ordination of the line of priests who will serve before God on behalf of Israel. They're somewhat like the first verses of chapter 25, which detailed the request for an offering for the tabernacle and his furnishings. Immediately after those verses, the account jumped right into the details for the construction of the ark. Now we move from the tabernacle itself to the garments for those who will serve in the tabernacle. And again, there is a short introduction of sorts before the first garment is described. The Bible is being exceedingly methodical in how it presents each step of the process. These words are included in the law of Moses, and these implements, the furniture, the house, the garments, etc., are especially important for the administration of that law. But even more, as we've seen a jillion times already, they are especially important because they ultimately picture Jesus Christ in his work. There is beauty and there is harmony each step of the way because there is beauty and there is harmony in Christ. He is the epitome of all perfection and therefore we would do well to consider each word as a joyous taste of a heavenly meal which is served by him. Concerning the priesthood of Israel, it only anticipates the eternal priesthood of Jesus. That priesthood is most notably recorded in the book of Hebrews. The term priest is used numerous times there in Hebrews to describe him as our high priest. The first time it is used is to show that he is a high priest, not unlike us, and thus not unlike the high priest of Israel. That's our text verse today. It's to be found in Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Where in scripture could we go to find more comforting words? The high priest of Israel was just a guy with a specific job. He was fallible and he was prone to any given weakness that any person was prone to. He could sympathize, therefore, with those he interceded for. And so to be like us who are fallen and in need of empathy, Christ came and he dwelt among us as a human being. He suffered and he was tempted. He can understand what was going on with us because of this, and he is able to sympathize with us in our own weaknesses. But because he never succumbed to the temptations he faced, we have a far greater high priest than Israel of old. If we are his, he will never get short-tempered with us. He will never be too weak to carry out his duties, and he will never, never let our names be dropped from the rolls of heaven once we are his. We are that way forever. This and many other pictures of his work for us are seen in today's verses. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is a priesthood for Israel. It's verses one through four. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. Here Moses is instructed to take Aaron and his sons. The word used here means to cause to draw near. There is elegance and there is a formality concerning the coming ordination of the priestly line. They are being drawn out of the entire congregation of the children of Israel in order to serve before the Lord. Up until this point, Moses was the sole person to act on behalf of the Lord in all such matters. However, with the enactment of the covenant, a line of priests would be necessary to mediate between the Lord and the people for the duration of the covenant. This honor is now to be bestowed upon the line of Aaron. Verse 1 continues, that he may minister to me as a priest. The word for minister as priest is a single word in Hebrew. It is kahan. It is a verb which is introduced into the Bible right here, and it means to serve as priest. It comes from the word kohen, which is a noun first used to describe Melchizedek, way back in Genesis 14, verse 18. Since then, it has been used to describe other priests in both Egypt and in Midian. It is where the somewhat common Jewish name Kohen comes from today. 
They descend from this priestly line of Aaron, as is evidenced by modern DNA analysis. This line is now being prepared for ordination, but before that occurs, which is described in the next chapter, the implements of their priesthood will first be detailed. This is the same type of process that's already been seen in the description of the implements for the tabernacle before the description of the tabernacle itself. Everything is following an exacting and very precise pattern. As Aaron is being drawn near to Moses, who is the Lord's prophet, it is showing that the prophetic order is therefore perpetually the medium through which and the condition on which the priestly order officiates. Moses was also the mediator of the covenant. And because of this, it is he to whom the priests must draw near. Verse 1 continues, Aaron and Aaron's sons. Though there is a succession of priests from Aaron, it is still only one priestly line. In contradistinction to this, the prophetic office is not determined by a single line. The Lord chose his prophets not by a line of succession, but by his spoken word through them. This is why in the case of the priesthood, it is not just Aaron who is called but also his sons who are to be his legal successors to him. Until he leaves the office, they will assist him in his duties. The actual ordination of the priests won't occur until the tabernacle is completed. It will be detailed in Leviticus chapter 8. It should be noted that Aaron is called for what is coming. He did not take this task upon himself, as is noted in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 with these words, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 1 continues, Nadav Avihu. The sons of Aaron have already been mentioned in the Bible, but there will be a marked difference in their futures. These two are not going to serve very long. During the time of their ordination, they will be destroyed by the Lord for not following the proper procedures laid out for the priesthood. That's actually found in Leviticus chapter 10 with these words, which I want to read to you. Then Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Aaron and, Aaron and Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Verse 1 continues, Eleazar and Ithamar. Due to the death of the two elder sons of Aaron, the priestly line will continue only through these two sons. The high priestly line will follow directly through Eleazar, but at a later time it will pass on to the line of Ithamar, to which it appears Eli, who is the last judge of Israel, belonged. Verse 2, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother. The garments are not holy in and of themselves, but they are deemed holy by the purpose for which they will be used, which is ministering in the holy places of the tabernacle and for conducting the sacred rites of the priesthood. That's why they have to also go through the ordination process. These garments would not have been worn just any time, but only during the times when they perform their official functions. This is seen, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 19, where it is explicitly stated that they take off their official garments and put on their regular garments, etc., it should be noted that like all other aspects of the worship of Israel, no such mandates are given to the church. And we need to remember that because we are not reinserting the law into our theology. We never want to make that mistake. These things of the law were given as pictures of Christ to come. In him, all of the details are realized in their fullness. Now in the church, we can worship at any time we want, in any place we want, and without the legal constraints of certain attire or performing certain functions. The New Testament gives very few guidelines concerning the way in which a church is to be conducted. Those that are given are generally prohibitions rather than mandates. Verse 2 continues, For glory and for beauty. Le chavod ou le tifaret. There's a sense of honor and dignity in these words. Glory or kavod comes from kavad, meaning heaviness or weight. But this is in the sense of something that is splendid. Thus, we use the term glory. The second word, tefara, is introduced into the Bible here. It means beauty. It comes from the verb pa'ar, which means to glorify. The clothes were intended to exalt the position of the priest so that they would maintain the proper respect of the people. They would be offset and thus deemed holy rather than common. They were also given to make the entire system of their duties more beautiful. 
Now, the sacrificing of animals, which they're going to be doing day in and day out, might seem like a task which would necessitate wearing some type of common garment or even something purposely harsh, but it was a sacred duty and one which was to be held in high esteem by the people. In requiring such beautiful garments, the tasks would be elevated to their proper weight in the eyes of the people. This type of sentiment is repeated several times in the Psalms and in this verse from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, where it says this, Give to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. John Gill notes that these garments, here's what he says, were typical of the glory and beauty of Christ's human nature, which were as a garment put on and put off and put on again, and in which he officiated as a priest and still does, and which is now very glorious, and in which he is fairer than any of the children of men, and of the garments of his salvation and robe of righteousness, in which all his people, his priests, appear exceedingly glorious and beautiful, even in a perfection of beauty. Now, you might not feel like you're the perfection of beauty right now, but that's how God sees us because of Christ. We're wearing these pure white garments of righteousness because of Christ, just like the white garments which are going to be given to the sons of Aaron. We'll see that in a week or two. Verse 3, so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans. Kalkachme lev, it says in Hebrew, all the wise of heart. In the Bible, it is the heart which is considered as the wellspring of wisdom and understanding. And biblical wisdom is that which governs and refines practical intelligence. A man can have high intelligence and yet not have any practical intelligence. Despite all of his knowledge, then, he is a man lacking wisdom. Therefore, when one uses an artistic skill in an inventive or an intricate way, they are considered as wise of heart and thus a gifted artisan. One can make a plain old square basket out of wicker work, or they can make an intricate and marvelously designed basket out of the same materials. Fine, precise, and beautiful work is what is notable, and it's what's enduring. One can admire someone's work from thousands of years earlier if it was done with care and wisdom. Those things which are simply mechanical and without true refinement may have utilitarian value, but they lack any sense of that which is glorious. This is why the heart is considered the seat of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Today, we look at the brain as the seat of intelligence and the heart as the seat of emotion. But if we are truly emotional about what we are doing, we will do it to the utmost of our ability. As this is the case, we are attempting to put into the use of our intelligence the skills which convey a sense of wisdom. And I want to give you an example of that from this past week. We have a new camera system here. And everything about this camera system has a utilitarian value. It has a value which will record things and it will, you know, has audio and you can turn it up and you can do this and that. But the person who developed this particular camera system did it to the glory of God. And he did it minutely and he did it precisely. He spent hours and hours doing things which were not necessary in order to ensure that this was glorifying of the Lord. And I will tell you this specifically, that he put into the programs itself, every single thing here that comes on and goes off, everything has a uh, microburst in it. It is the first thing that will happen before anything else happens in any part of this system. And the microburst says these words, holiness to the Lord. And so anybody, if anybody were ever to come in here and to steal this and they were to plug it in, that would be the very first thing that they saw are the words holiness to the Lord. And every aspect of this entire camera system, every aspect has that in there. That is because he wanted to glorify God with it rather than just do something that would make him look like a professional person that, you know, can do something cool. He did it to the glory of the Lord. And this is what we should do with every aspect of our lives. In the case of what is to be made for the priestly garments, they were to go beyond mere utility and enter into the realm of true beauty and glory, holiness to the Lord. And we want to thank Sergio for that the next time we see him. Verse 3 continues, Whom I have filled with the Spirit of of wisdom. This verse right here leaves open an immense question, which is not directly answered anywhere else. Were these artisans filled with the spirit of wisdom for a particular task at this particular time, or were they simply people who had a gift because of their makeup as individual humans? Exodus 31 verses 1 through 5 seems to state that one man, his name is Bezalel, was especially infused with the spirit of God for his duties. And yet, there are others in the world that can do the same things that he has done. Should I wish to speculate, which I do, and so I will, we all have gifts which are unique. 
Our makeup, and indeed all things, originally stem from God. In the case of the workmen, they were simply people who had special abilities because of who they were as individuals. Can we say that those who built the atom bomb did it apart from the purposes of God? No. Can we say that those who designed the precision parts of a transmission in a car did not serve a purpose in the march of time and human achievement that God foreknew would occur? The answer is no. He knew every single thing that every person would do. God has filled all of us with his wisdom according to his purposes. What we do with it will either glorify him or not. But the intelligence and wisdom that we have certainly came from him. If he wants to supplement that directly through external inspiration, such as he did in the case of King Solomon, that is his prerogative. But we should not assume that this is always the case. Therefore, it is incumbent on us, on us, to use the wisdom that God has given us in the most effective way we can. If we lack in wisdom and we feel that we're lacking in wisdom in that department, then we can petition his hand to increase that wisdom. That's said in the book of James chapter one in the fifth verse, where it says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So it's incumbent on you if you want to increase in wisdom. And I'm not talking about practical knowledge. I'm talking about the application of that. That's why we come to church is to learn to apply the practical knowledge that we have and to use it for God's glory in a sense of wisdom. Verse 3 continues, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. The makings of the garments beyond their regular use and purpose is specifically said to be as a part of his consecration. In other words, the office of the priest was not established for Aaron, nor is it defined by him. Rather, he is invested with the office according to the calling of God and in connection with the bestowal of these garments. This isn't just speculation either, but it is explicitly seen at the time of Aaron's death. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 20. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. For Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. The calling was of the Lord. The consecration was of the Lord. And the time for Aaron's duties to end, followed by the consecration of the next high priest, was according to the Lord. This is why I cited Hebrews 5 verse 4 earlier. No man takes this honor upon himself. Rather, it is according to the call of God. Verse 4, and these are the garments which they shall make. Six items are going to be described here. A seventh is added in in verse 36. These six garments are to adorn the high priest, picturing Christ the man. The seventh is a golden plate which will read holiness to the Lord. Just as Sergio had put into this programmed uh, camera and computer system, that's exactly what would be on the forehead of the high priest of Israel. Thus it brings in the idea of spiritual perfection, that which defines the very holiness of the Lord. Verse 4 continues, a breastplate and ephod. Both of these were introduced into the Bible in chapter 25 in the initial instructions for the collection of materials for what would later be described. What is rather unusual is that almost no specifics were mentioned as to what the materials were for, with but a few exceptions, two of them being the ephod and the breastplate. Here is that original mandate from chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who, is, who gives it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod. And in the breastplate, he mentions those specifically, the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. What is also unusual is that in chapter 25 that I just read you, it first mentions the ephod and then the breastplate. However, they are reversed here in the verse we're looking at. But then they're reversed again when the directions for making them are given later in this chapter. Verse 4 continues, a robe, the robe or me'il is introduced into the Bible here. It is a long garment that went down to the feet, which would be worn under the ephod. Verse 4 continues, a skillfully woven tunic. Uketonet tashpets. 
This would be a checkered or emblazoned garment, as is indicated by the word tashbetz, which is only used here in the entire Bible. Josephus says that it is a tunic circumscribing or enclosing, encompassing the body and having tight sleeves for the arms. Verse 4 continues, a turban, mitznefet, another new word in the Bible. It will be used a total of 12 times in Exodus and Leviticus and one time in Ezekiel. It is an official turban which is worn by a priest or a king. Verse 4 continues, and a sash, ve'avnet, the avnet or sash is found for the first of nine times here. Again, it's only going to be seen in Exodus and in Leviticus and one time in Isaiah chapter 22. It is a belt or a sash that is worn at the waist. Verse 4 continues, So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. It is for this reason that all of this work is to be accomplished. They were to take part in the most solemn duties granted to man until the coming of Christ himself. They were to minister to the Lord as a priestly line for the chosen people of God. Beautiful garments, so rich and glorious, to adorn the high priest of Israel. But they only point to our Lord victorious. In every detail, there is a story to tell. In them, we see his beauty, his splendor and glory. In them, we see his work accomplished on behalf of us. Yes, in every detail, there is a marvelous story about the coming Christ, our Lord Jesus. And they tell yet more, that of which he does even now. They tell of his work interceding to the Father for us. For to him did all high priestly duties endow. Yes, he stands before his Father, our great Lord Jesus. Our second thought today is the ephod and the memorial stones. It's verses 5 through 14. Verse 5, they shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and the fine linen. There's a definite article in front of each category here. They shall take the gold, the blue, etc. This is because of the words, vehem yiku, and they shall take. It is for this reason that they're used. The artisans who have been requested are to be given their materials from out of the offering, which was noted at the beginning of chapter 25. The same materials for the tabernacle are to be used for the garments. Verse 6, And they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. The ephod is a sleeveless, is a sleeveless garment. It's basically a jerkin or a waistcoat. It is to be made of the same colors as the veil, but with the addition of gold thread added into it. The colors follow the exact same meaning as they did before. Divinity and royalty for the gold, the law for blue, royalty for the purple, which is a combination of blue and red, war, blood, and judgment for the red, and finally righteousness for the woven linen. Before going on, I already noted that it first said the ephod and then the breastplate in chapter 25. Then it said the breastplate and the ephod in verse 4. Now the ephod is being described first. The two are being linked together in a manner quite similar to the ark in the mercy seat. The ephod will bear the breastplate just as the ark bore the mercy seat. Though the ark was described first, it is the mercy seat which crowns the ark. The ark embodies the law, thus the old covenant, while the mercy seat signifies the satisfaction of the law and the granting of the new covenant. So it is with the ephod and the breastplate. On the ephod will be two stones with the names of the children of Israel engraved on them. Thus it signifies the high priest's role to bear their sufferings and labors of the people. On the breastplate will be the 12 stones which will be engraved with the names of the children of Israel. This then signifies the high priest and his ability to sympathize with his people as an intercessor before God. Each of them pictures Christ and what he's doing for us right now. In both, the work of Christ is seen. First he bore our burdens and then he became our intercessor. This is the reason for the order of each description. Marvelous wisdom is seen even in the order of how each thing is described to Moses. Verse 6 continues, artistically worked. These are the same words, ma'ase choshev, or skillfully worked, that were used in Exodus 26, verse 31, to describe the artistic weaving of the cherubim, which were on the veil of the tabernacle. Intricate care and fine detail is to be used in the weaving of this ephod. This would have probably been woven with handlooms, which were brought by the people when they departed Egypt. Verse 7, it shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. What is believed to be the case here is that the ephod was two separate pieces of material, 
one which covered the back and one which covered the front. They were joined at the shoulders so that it would be pulled over the head and rest on the shoulders. From there, the two halves would then be united by a band, which will be described next. If you think of the two halves of a coat of armor strapped together at the shoulders and then joined together after being put over the head, you can get an idea of what this was probably like. Verse 8, And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. The cheshev, or band, is introduced into the Bible here. It's only going to be used eight times and only in connection with this ephod. It is the band or belt which will keep the two lower parts of the ephod held close to the body. This particular band was to be wrought with the same materials as the ephod itself. It is believed to have been sewn onto the ephod at one point and then it could be wrapped around the body and secured by strings or maybe a button or some other way. Its use is seen at the time of the ordination of Aaron, which is recorded in Leviticus chapter 8 with these words. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. The idea of this band or girdle pictures readiness for service. This is a theme which is seen all the way throughout scripture. In one instance, the most moving of all accounts recorded in the Bible is in John, where Christ girded himself or made himself ready to serve with a towel. Here's what it says in John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, this is the night before he was crucified, he did this, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The gold woven into this belt of the ephod anticipates the divine intervention of Christ for us. This is seen in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 with these words. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. That's what's being described right here. It needs to be noted that the band is made of the same materials as the ephod. It then symbolizes that the services Christ now renders to us reflect his human divine nature. Though ascended to heaven, the book of Hebrews says that he is there in the presence of God right now making intercession for us. Verse 9, then you shall take two onyx stones. It isn't known what the avne shoham or stones onyx really are. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says emeralds. However, the emerald was too hard to engrave at this time in history. Some say beryl, some say onyx, some say sardonyx or some other stone. It would be very good for us not to be dogmatic here. Just so you know, we're not sure what this stone is. Verse 9 continues, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Whatever the stones were, their use is not in question. They were to be used for engraving. On them would be the names of the sons of Israel. What is always difficult to precisely determine when uh, is when to use this term, the sons of Israel, or the term, the children of Israel, which should be used. In Hebrew, it's the exact same word. It is B'nai Israel. It can mean either. However, the picture that the people collectively make, the people of Israel, is that of a group who are bound under the law, and thus they're under a tutor. Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3. As they are under the law, using the term children of Israel is best when describing them as a collective group of people. However, in this case, the term sons of Israel seems better. It is the names of the 12 sons of the actual living Israel who are being engraved. Though they represent all of the people collectively, it is their individual names which are being engraved. Thus, translations that say sons of Israel more accurately reflect the intent of what is being said in this verse right here. Now, that might seem like nitpicking, but Paul is very clear about the purpose of the law and those who live under the law. They are children that are being led by a tutor. They are not yet sons with full rights. Verse 10, six of their names on one stone and six of their names on the other stone. The names and their placement is actually a source of uncertainty. Are these the actual 12 sons of Israel, which include the name of Joseph and not the two adopted sons, Manasseh and Ephraim? Or... Are they listed in his place and is Levi then dropped out? What seems most natural is that they are the literal 12 sons who issued from Israel. As Ephraim and Manasseh issue from Joseph, 
then they are contained within his seed and thus are reflected in his name. Verse 10 continues, in order of their birth. This is translated from a single word, ketodotam. The word means according to the generations, and so translators say birth. But scholars question whether it is according to the birth order or the priority which was given back in Exodus chapter 1, where the sons of Jacob's wives are named first, and then the sons of the concubines are named later. Flavius Josephus states that they are according to the actual births, regardless of mother. And this seems to be the most probable alignment of their names. Verse 11, with the work of an engraver in stone, the harash or engraver is introduced into the Bible here. The word can mean a fabricator of any material, such as stone, wood, metal, and so on. As stone is identified and the purpose is for engraving, then the term engraver is appropriate. Verse 11 going on, like engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with their names of the sons of Israel. Two more interesting words are introduced into the Bible here. The pituach, or engravings, is a noun which indicates what an engraver makes. It comes from the verb patach, which means to appear. And so you get the idea of the work of the engraver's hands having appeared as engravings. The other word, kotam, indicates a signet. It has only been seen in Genesis 38, verse 18, when Tamar, the daughter of Judah, asked for his signet, cord, and staff. The work here is to be exceptionally fine and detailed. The names of the sons of Israel are to be clearly and precisely engraved on these two stones. Verse 11 going on, you shall set them in settings of gold. This is a very fun sounding clause in the Hebrew. Musabot mishbesot zahav ta'ase otam. It almost sounds rhyming. The word musaba indicates a reversal. In other words, the backside of the stone will be set in a mitzbesah, or a surrounding work, which is probably of gold filigree. Verse 12, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. The King James Version says, of memorial unto the children of Israel. This is not correct. The stones were considered a reminder to God, not a reminder to the children of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. However, the term children of Israel here is probably better. New King James Version says, sons, I would defer to children. Though the names of the sons of Israel are recorded, they are recorded on behalf of the people collectively. Therefore, as they are under the tutor of the law, it would not be incorrect to say children here instead of sons. In the end, this can be considered niggling over minutiae. I know that. But sometimes it is needed to get the very best sense of what we're being taught through the symbols and the pictures of these ancient passages. These stones resting on the shoulders of the high priest were considered as a reminder to God. They were for a memorial that the high priest was before him bearing their burdens, and he was doing it just as Christ bore our burdens on behalf of us. It is a picture of his mediatorial work for us before God the Father. As the shoulder is the place of strength, this then pictures our perfect security in Christ. It is not our perseverance which saves us, but his. He is the one who bore our burdens, and he is the one who will continue to bear them until we arrive in our heavenly home. We are secure because of him. As the names of the twelve sons are recorded on these two stones, and as they are placed on the shoulders, it then reflects the sentiments of Isaiah 9, verse 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The number 12 in the Bible, as we've seen a million times already, signifies the perfection of government. Thus, this signifies Christ's ministry as our perfect governmental leader. Verse 13, you shall also make settings of gold. There are two theories on what these settings are. The first is that they are settings for the stones themselves, which were first named in verse 11. The second is that they are two different settings, which are used specifically for the chains of the next verse to be attached to. The purpose of which is to hold the breastplate to the ephod, which will be described next. The second option, I think, is likely. They are a connecting part of the ephod, just as the crown molding was a connecting part of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat sat down in the molding, and in a similar fashion, the breastplate is attached by this socket and chain. 
In other words, in both instances, the Ark and the Mercy Seat and the Breastplate and the Ephod, the two objects are not truly complete, one without the other. Verse 14, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords. The Sharsharah, or chain, is now introduced into the Bible here for the first of seven times. It comes from a word which means root. Thus, these chains entwine, just as a root would. The chains are described by the adjective tahor, or pure. This word has not been seen since chapter 25 when describing the things in the holy place. Thus, they are intended to picture the perfect purity of Christ's divinity. In this clause is a very rare word found only here in Scripture, migbalot. It is actually unknown what this word means. Here it is translated as braided cords. Thus, the translators consider it as defining the word chain. However, it comes from the word gebul, which means border, and so it could mean of equal length. Both chains are of equal length. Either way, the intent is that these chains will be used to hold the breastplate onto the ephod. Either translation would work concerning what these chains are used for. We finish with these words from verse 14, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. The chains are to be fastened to the settings. It won't be until verse 22 that the purpose is defined. As I said, though, this is not unusual concerning the fact that the ephod and the breastplate are actually two implements, and yet they are incomplete, one without the other. In picture and which I'll try to remember to repeat later when we describe the breastplate, Christ's work of bearing our burdens is not complete without Christ's work of interceding for us. Without the first, the second would not take effect. But without the second, the first would have been pointless. It would make no sense at all for Christ to die for our sins if he were not to then intercede for us after we receive his finished work. And it would make no sense for Christ to be our mediator to God if we were not acceptable to God because of his completed work. It's marvelous to see how these seemingly obscure pieces of furniture and clothing come to life when viewed through the lens of the finished work of Christ and his first advent and his ongoing work on our behalf. It is great stuff from an even greater God. The amazing thing about these verses today is that every single thing about them points to Jesus Christ, and yet for 1,500 years, they really had no idea that this was the case. The high priest wore his garments, he did his work, and he probably never stopped to consider that each detail of what he wore actually finds its fulfillment in the coming Messiah. Who would think? But now, with Christ having come, we can see that this is the case. As with each set of details, it calls out to us that God wants us to look for him, to fix our eyes on him, and to follow him every single moment of our lives. I would pray that this would be your one burning desire throughout all of your life, is to simply pursue Christ. He is there in every single detail of the Bible, and he is there with you at all times in your life. Call on him, and you too can be a part of what God has shown in advance that he would do for us. It's all about him. And so just in case somebody here today has never called on Jesus Christ and asked him to be the savior of their life, I want to explain very quickly what you need to do. The Bible says that there is a rift between us and God. It's an eternal rift because he's outside of time. He's infinite and we're finite. We're in time and we're going this way. And we can't go back and undo the sin that we have in our life. And the worst part about it is we have sin which was inherited from our first father, Adam. Adam broke God's law, and that sin is transferred father to child, father to child, throughout all of human history. And so we can't go back to undo what Adam did. But God can, because he's outside of time. He stepped out of the infinite realm into the time that we're in, in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born without a human father, and so he did not inherit Adam's sin. God is his father. He is perfect and sinless. And he was born of a woman, so he's fully man. He's fully God, fully man. He was born under the law that we're looking at right now, mediated by a fallible high priest. He came and he lived that law perfectly. He never violated it. That's the purpose of the four gospels is to say, I will do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. I will fulfill this law. And then he gave his life up in satisfaction of that law and in exchange for our sins. That's what he did for us. And if we simply call on him and say, I believe that you can take away the guilt that I bear in me because of the sin in my life, then he will save you. I'll give you a couple verses here. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The next is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He offers us something that we can never obtain by ourselves. 
We can never work our way to heaven. It's an infinite ladder and we can never climb to infinity. We'll be working forever and we'll never get there. But Christ came down to do it for us. He is the ladder, which is pictured in the Bible. Jacob's ladder, where the angels ascended and descended onto Christ. He's the ladder, he's the rock, and he is the gate in heaven. And he says, if you'll just call on me and trust in me, I will take away your sin and I will give you eternal life. And here's what you need to do. Very simple. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is call on Jesus. You don't have to give money to your church. You don't have to show up at church if you don't want to. You don't have to do anything in order to be saved. You just call out to him and say, God, I want you. And why do we go to church after that? It's because we want to learn about this wonderful Savior and learn how to live for him and how to live our lives for him and to honor him with these lives. I grew up with one of the girls that walked in during the sermon here. We weren't very perfect, were we? No. But Christ can change even people like you and me, can he? He's wonderful. And he can sanctify us as we pursue him. And we can become better and we can become better. And someday we're going to die and he will glorify us and we'll be perfect in his presence if we simply call out to him. And if not, as Bob wisely noted at the beginning of the service today, everybody's going to live forever. It just depends on where you're going to live. Are you going to spend eternity separated from God the Father, cast into the lake of fire? Or are you going to spend eternity with God in heaven, rejoicing with him, what he did for us? All pictured in these obscure passages that most people never read because they don't look for Christ. But he's on every single page, every single sentence, and in every single word. It's all about him. So please, if you've never called on Christ, do it today. All right? I have a closing verse for you from Psalm 93. It's verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Remember I said God is eternal? There it is right there. From everlasting to everlasting. God. Next week, study up these verses. This is your assignment. It's Exodus 28, 15 through 30, the breastplate of judgment. That'll be your 77th Exodus sermon. Then I'll tell you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I have a poem for you based on the 14 verses. I do this every week. Some of you have never been here before, so you don't know, but I've taken the entire Bible as I go through it and I make a poem out of it. So someday, you know, 892 years from now, we'll have a whole poem out of the Bible. Anyway, it's called Garments of the Priesthood. If you follow along in the New King James Version, it's almost identical. I just add in the rhyming part. If you have another Bible, it's not going to match as closely. Now take Aaron, your brother, as I to you tell, and his sons with him from the oldest to the least from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, listed as they are, Nadab, Avihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments, this you shall do, for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty, as I instruct you. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, you see, that they may take, uh, make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make according to these words to you, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash too. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons as well, that he may minister to me as priest. They shall follow the instructions that I now tell. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread too, and the fine linen as they are instructed to do. And they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen artistically worked, following the details, as I have said. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges is how it is to be, and so it shall be joined together. It shall be made thus accordingly. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, you see. Then you shall take two onyx stones, as I now do tell, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel." six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth as is known. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet as well, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. 
You shall set them in settings of gold, and sure they do according to how they have been told. And you shall put the two stones as well on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names, so he shall do, before the Lord as a memorial on his shoulders too. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains, so shall it be, of pure gold like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings, you see. Such are the garments of the high priest of Israel, and how beautiful they must have been to see. But they have an even greater story of which to tell, as they only foreshadow the work of Christ for you and me. Every detail gives us precious insights to delight, things that provide our souls with surety, that through his work all things have been made right, and that our future is secure, a divine guarantee. Thank you, O God, for these marvelous hints of Jesus, written so long ago, and yet as new as the day before our eyes. They are an anchor for the expectant souls of each of us as we wait upon his return, he our splendid prize. And because of him, we shall for all eternity give you our praise. Yes, we shall hail you, O God, because of Jesus for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book that you've given us. And today's verses were a bit complicated. They're uh, hard for us to grasp what is going on because there's so much minute detail. But when we just step back and look at it, that it all pictures Christ in his coming and that every detail pictures a part of either his person or his work, it all makes sense. It all falls into place and we see how much you love us, how desperate your heart is for us to be reconciled to you and to call back to you and to say, I want Jesus. I want to be saved and I want to live for him and I want to live a life that's holy and honoring of you. And how hard it is. I mean, 51 years I've walked on this earth and I mess up every single day. The thoughts that permeate my mind just are terrible. Sometimes I have to wonder, how could you love a person like me? But I know that you do because your word says it. And I know that your word is truth. And so I cling to that. And I cling to the cross of Christ who went to Calvary for me and for each person here and every person on this earth that we should be talking to about his glory. Help us to do this. Help us to do this, O oh God, to share the message of Jesus. And we do pray for those that are in pain or that are in trial or that are in distress because of the loss of loved ones, all mentioned earlier. We also pray for those who are traveling and uh, or who will be traveling in the week ahead, that safety will be with them as they go. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we commit the uh, Lord's table to you in just a moment. And we do all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our beautiful Lord and Savior. Amen.